The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the original series episode, The Squire of Gothos. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And I used the wrong verb because also joining us is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Daddy Dom. Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and we'd love to hear from you in both of those places or wherever you'll find us online. I also want to tell you about another uh, podcast on the StarQuest Network that I'm sure you'll enjoy called PlayStation Portable. It is a daily uh, experience of prayer of the Church's Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, uh, at set specific hours of the day. You can take a moment and listen and pray along with Jeff, who does the, the Liturgy of the Hours for us, the PlayStation Portable podcast. It's one of the longest-running podcasts ever. Over over 15 years now, 16, 17 years at this point, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a fantastic podcast. Check it out wherever you find podcasts or at sqpn.com. But today we're talking about The Squire of Gothos, and uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of this uh, episode? The Enterprise encounters a planet that is home to a being named Trelane, who has a replicator that allows him to materialize anything he wants. Trelane is extremely polite and friendly, and he wants to entertain the crew and have a nice talk about Earth. He's been studying Earth, which is hundreds of light years away, and because of the light speed limit, he thinks humans are still a bunch of colorful, passionate, violent savages. It turns out he's right, because (laughs) despite the fact that this is a first contact mission, Kirk and his crew totally blow it by repeatedly insulting Trelane, <laughs> being rude to him, and even physically attacking him without orders from Kirk. At one point, Kirk smashes one of Trelane's replicators, and they temporarily get away. But Trelane moves the planet to catch up with the ship, and Kirk beams back and offers to sacrifice himself if Trelane lets the ship go. Specifically, Kirk invites Trelane to reenact Richard Connell's 1924 story, The Most Dangerous Game. So, we have a sequence in which we watch yet another TV adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game in which Trelane hunts Kirk outdoors. But, before he can kill Kirk, Trelane's energy-being space parents show up and send him to his room. They apologize to Kirk for letting their child get out of hand, and they let the Enterprise go on its way. The end. (laughs) (laughs) So. There are aspects of the story that are somewhat, uh, you know, by the numbers. But I always enjoyed the 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 twist of that Trelane isn't just another one of these aliens that we don't understand who treats us like playthings, but in fact is a giant alien child. You know, the, the, I, who treats I, I us like that, playthings. <laughs> yeah, but it treats us like playthings. But it's like it's not an you know an adult; it's a child. And, uh, and when you look back on it, you go, that's actually how a child would would act. You know, if it, or an immature person would act and and, uh, and it, it's especially nice in the scene where his parents show up and the parents are just depicted as glowing throbbing balls of energy yes but he's talking to them and he talks like a child right and this and the parents 
lines in the script are modeled. I mean, this it becomes really obvious. It's written like 1960s parents talking to a 1960s small child. Yes. So the parents show up and they're, they're like, it's time to come in now. And <laughs> I mean, and they literally say that, mm-hmm. you know, it's time to come in. And and he starts making excuses and he says, you know, I haven't finished studying my predators yet. You know, like I haven't <laughs> finished my homework yet. And if you can't take care of your pets, then you won't be allowed to have any. Yeah. And, you know, and I never have any fun. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't stop this, you won't be permitted to make any more planets. Yeah. So <laughs> right, it, right. It's, it's very, very 1960s parents and child. And uh, the actor who plays Trelane is William Campbell, who's a character actor that you've probably seen in a bunch of stuff if you've watched anything from the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, but he is also uh, Koloth, the Klingon Koloth in, mm. in Trouble with Tribbles and, and some other episodes as well. But I think he just does a fantastic job here. I think it's a really yeah. both like sometimes he's menacing in a very under, you know, kind of a blatant way, sometimes understated way. Sometimes he's playful. I think he just does. a He just dives into this role and he does such a good job with it. I really enjoyed that. This is definitely one of these episodes that, you know, is very well known, not just within Star Trek, but even outside of it. You know, there are yeah. there are things that, that are known on a wider wider scale from this episode, you know, Trelane and, and some of the stuff that he does. Right. So, I mean, it's 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 one of the more famous episodes of, of Star Trek, I would say. And it is one that I, I knew about even though I had never seen it before. Right. Uh, until this you know, oh, until really? now. Yeah. It's yeah. well I've I've said many times before that this really is a first time watch through for me for the original mm-hmm. series. And so this is, you know, an episode that I hadn't seen, seen before this time, but knew, you know, a lot about, I knew about Trillane and, and right. one of the controversies we'll talk about regarding him and a character from TNG. Well, we, let's bring it up. Cause that was, that's my very first note on this episode is that hmm. a lot of people, a lot of fans have this fan theory that Trillane and his parents are part of the Q continuum, that he's one of the, mm-hmm. the, the Q, the ultra powerful uh, ultra knowledgeable not gonna say omni because they're, they're obviously they're not limits. really yeah no uh but uh do you, i mean what do you think about this fan theory that trelane is a q i i i see the appeal of it because in some ways trelane is a lot like the john delancey q yeah now mm-hmm. not one thing we find out later not all cues are the same John Delancey's Q appears to be an outlier who is more, much more mischievous than ordinary Q, and that at one point gets him in trouble and gets him kicked out of the continuum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other Q, as we learn, especially in Voyager, can be much more reserved and um, even opposed to change and chaos. So Trelane is powerful, like Q, but he's also like John Delancey specifically, yeah. not like all Q. Right. So I understand the... Now, we do know that Q reproduce, mm-hmm. although if I recall correctly, when we see that happen um, in Voyager, it's like this is the first Q that's been conceived in millions of years or something. Right, right. It was yeah, very something unusual. Like that. Yeah. Although there were two Q parents who had been like, left or been kicked out of the continuum who had a daughter. Yeah. Uh, but they that was after they left the continuum. And that was in T and G's time. Yep. So it's it's possible there could be a Q child. And I understand that Peter David wrote a novel in which he 
you know, declared Trelane a Q child and then explained away the discrepancies. But there are discrepancies. Right. Q, this Q, if he were a Q, or I should say just say Trelane, is very definitely not as knowledgeable Mm -hmm. as regular Q. He doesn't understand the light speed limit because he's not, we're told that Gothos, his planet, is 900 light years from Earth. And mm-hmm. so he has been watching events on Earth with some unimaginably large lens <laughs> yeah. that would, he's been watching images that are 900 years old. Now, that would imply, since he knows about Napoleon mm-hmm. and likes Napoleon, yeah. that would imply that Star Trek is set in the 27th or 28th century. Right. Oh, which, sure. which later they undo. Yeah. This is an early example of they really weren't sure how far in the future Star Trek was meant to be. But we can let that pass uh, mm-hmm. because it's an early thing. But um, one of the points that the human characters make is that all of the recreations that Q has made with his replicator, because that's all it is. He's just got replicators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All, he's, all he's done with the replicators are based on imagery he's seen. So his fireplace has the image of fire burning within it, but it gives off no heat. Right. And he similarly, uh, his, the food and wine that he serves them has absolutely no taste. Are we sure they didn't have COVID, uh, the, the crew? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they, didn't, they didn't foresee COVID in 1967. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> he also has no knowledge that there's women on the ship. And even if he had gotten his knowledge of Earth by seeing images from 900 years in the past, he uh, John Delancey's Q would have picked up on the fact there are women on this ship that has just come by. Right. Right. Yes. And then fundamentally, so this guy has, they point out repeatedly, he's got very limited knowledge. So he's mm-hmm. very unlike a Q in that respect. Mm-hmm. And he's dependent on replicators. Yes, yes, yeah. That those are the those are the big key things that differentiate. Now, of course, you know this was written was some thirty twenty five years before Q and TNG and all that sort of thing. Uh, I, I do wonder. I don't know if I've ever read was Q John Delancey's Q inspired by Trelane in in that sense because there's there are th- those definite parallels there that you know the chaotic figure even the trial he he puts mm-hmm. kirk on trial just like yep. he puts picard on trial uh so that was speaks french too trelane speaks french to this and so does delancey <laughs> of course and, delancey and, does it to mock picard but still yeah yeah he also speaks german at one point so he 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 two of the two of the temporary characters we have this week are named Desal and jaeger Mm-hmm. And they're among the first to beam down, and um, so Q meets them, and it's like, "Oh, Desal, you must be French." And he like says a line in French to him, and then when he learns the other one is named Jaeger, which is a German name, it means hunter. He starts riffing on German, and he starts doing this little martial parade kind of move, and he says, "Eins, zwei, drei, wir gehen wir mit dem Schiskevier." <laughs> He says it in rhythm that's better than I did because I didn't really practice. But what that means is one, two, three, four, let's go with the rifle. <laughs> at, 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 at which point, um, Jaeger says, actually, I'm an explorer or I'm a scientist, not a, not a weapons guy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's actually a big aspect of, of uh, 
Trelane is that he's he styles himself as a retired general, and he's you know he's very martial. Everything's about war and fighting and savagery, and he expects the 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 humans that he encounters to also be just like that. And I read that the writer of this envisioned the story as a sort of an anti-war story after he saw children playing soldiers playing at war. Uh, so it being the sixties and all. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, children, especially boys play fighting is, um, a human universal. It's in yeah. every single culture because as men, they're likely to have to get into fights, especially historically. And right. so it, they need to practice when they're children right. and it needs to be fun <laughs> in order to get them to do it. And so safe, relatively safe play fighting is built mm-hmm. into human nature. So don't be right. play-shaming children on that basis. <laughs> right. That, that's exactly. that's kind of like you hear the story of, of boys who get in trouble because, you know, guns are banned, but then they chew their Pop-Tart into a gun. Exactly. <laughs> right. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so point their fingers, the, the pointer finger but, gun. But this this was, you know, a something that in the 1960s was a cultural, and 70s was a cultural meme. I can remember as a child playing Cops and Robbers or whatever mm-hmm. it was, and having some adults like try to stop that on the mm-hmm. grounds that oh that's violent it's like it's fun what's wrong yeah. with you <laughs> yeah right exactly well it's, oh, it's politically have... incorrect and their version of that is uh cowboys and indians yes uh, on the other hand i give my children plastic swords so good there you go <laughs> uh so the the yeah, i think po- i think star wars did little boys a favor everywhere by making lightsabers so uh yeah culturally prominent that yep. uh that parents would actually give them to their children yes yes thank you george Lucas. <laughs> uh so that starts with them traveling across a void they're on their way to bring a cargo of needed supplies to somebody you know the usual thing of uh where, where we can't be delayed and so they're traveling across this uh space desert uh and they encounter this planet in the middle uncharted um you know, no, not expected to be there, but it's inhospitable. That's actually a big aspect of the the first start of this is is it's not a, a, a habitable planet. Um, and uh, also, the way they introduce it, it sounded to me like it's meant to be a rogue planet. Yeah, yeah. But later they say they talk about entering its solar system, and it's got a lot of light shining on it. Right. So apparently not. Although I do like they say it must be in a light warp, or we would not have seen it until now. Suggesting that light has been bent around it to keep it hidden. Yes, mm. yes. Um, and, and as, uh, I forget, what was the precipitation for both Sulu and then Kirk are disappeared from the bridge? Yes. Before, so when they went to- Kirk, Kirk orders Sulu to change course so they can avoid it. And yeah. as soon as he reaches for the buttons to do it, he disappears. And then uh, Kirk, Kirk runs over yeah. to the console and he disappears right away too. Okay, right. That's what it is. Um, and then Spock's now in charge. DeSalle, the navigator, who, who gets a, he, I think he's in at least one other episode. We see him at least one more time. But DeSalle, the navigator, and McCoy, they both want to immediately s- transport down and start searching this entire planet without any <laughs> idea of where the, where to go to get them. Let's yeah, just go search a planet. Don't foot. know we can, and Spock is like, dudes, I don't know that we can delay our mission for decades while you search that planet <laughs> right, right uh and then they get a text message from the planet uh f- which was uh basically greetings and felicitations and when yes. they respond <laughs> hip hip hooray tally ho <laughs> right right yes i believe it's pronounced tally ho as box says 
So, so uh, yes, they they get a, t- a text invitation, and so they beam down to a place where they they think it's going to be uh, this very inhospitable atmosphere, volcanic gases. Uh, but it's in this very pleasant place, and they, it's interesting. So, so they're wearing breather masks, yes. but not not full spacesuits. Apparently, that was a directorial decision to not do the spacesuits like we saw in Naked Time. Uh, I saw a quote from the director who said, let's not do that. We don't want the audience to laugh at the beginning. Uh, apparently, the suits were la- laughable uh, <laughs> to him. And uh, they, they beam down. They encounter a, uh, uh, a keep, a castle, of a, like a sort of, a, you know, again, a Regency era sort of building, which is out of place. Uh, and then when they go inside, they see displays of all of these creatures, including the salt vampire from the man trap. Which uh, McCoy gives a very good double take to, which I really yeah. enjoyed, and a uh, the bird alien from the Cage, the original mm. pilot. Oh I, yeah, I, I was very impressed with the set they used here because all of this is done on a soundstage, so yep. they have this outdoor setting, and it's a typical TV, you know, forest jungle type setting. You can tell it's not real. Yeah, but when they go up to the um, when you when they go up to the to the castle, they've. I mean, it looks good as a set. And from mm-hmm. the outside, and they've thoughtfully done things to add detail to it that that are nice that they didn't have to do. Like they have shoveled dirt onto the floor of the soundstage, and mm-hmm. they've shoveled dirt onto the steps right. of the castle. So the steps are partially buried in dirt, and they didn't have to do that. And then when you come into the castle, they have all of these uh, props. Now, a lot, a lot of them would have just been period piece props that Desilu mm-hmm. would have had access to, you know, because they're, they're inspired by European history. And a lot of them are just European historical props. But then you've got, including things like a harpsichord and stuff like that. But then they have these alien elements. And not just the ones we've seen before, like the salt vampire and the bird alien from the cage. They also have these mounted heads, and there's kind of a bug-eyed alien head that mm-hmm. they must have made for this. And there's a sort of like an alligator head, and then there's an actual alligator head. Now, that they could have mm-hmm. got, gotten out of inventory. Right. But it's a very nicely dressed set, including yeah. things that they didn't have to make to pull this off, but they made them anyway. Right. Right, right. There was yeah, it was some nice attention to detail here, and uh, and yeah, it's really nice. Uh, I do I do like the fact that they include the salt vampire and had the McCoy reaction because that just was uh, perfect. Yeah, um, yeah. And then Kirk and Sulu are in there again, frozen and posed like statues, which in green light. Yeah, and I and 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 as soon as the, Trelane turns off the light, they unfreeze. But that's actually creepy seeing the captain and Sulu there frozen in green light. Yeah, yep. yeah. He's he's collected them, which is yeah, really creepy. The uh, I like the when they first see Trelane when he shows up, he's playing uh, the sonata in C major by Domenico Scarlatti. So oh. a little namesake How about that there, a little name check there. Uh, just I thought I'd throw that in there. I saw it in the notes on Memory Alpha. Uh, <laughs> uh, Trelane is very enchanted with the idea of women being aboard the ship because, again, from his point of view in regency era in you know the, the the early 1800s women were not on board military ships and so uh he wants to beam them all down <laughs> and he's sure they're all beautiful which well it's star trek so yes they are yes that's yes. true <laughs> they are all beautiful <laughs> and uh 
he ends up they end up having uh uhura and uh the yeoman of the week uh, uh mm-hmm. beaming down instead uh, yeah so this would be one of the replacements for janice rand after um i'm forgetting the actress's name Reece, after she Reece Reece whitney. whitney after yeah. she left the series right um now they he wants to beam all the women down but instead, Spock beams them the the crew that's down there up, and Trelane is intent on punishing Spock for doing that. So that sets up this this uh, Spock versus Trelane conflict through the rest of the episode. This sort of a Spock being sort of nonplussed, you know, the regular Spock uh, to Trelane's kind of chaotic emotion, which is gives uh, us some fun moments. And uh, as I was saying, like Trelane has this subtle combination. I don't know if it's subtle, but this combination of witty, urbane, and threatening that just feels unhinged throughout it, which is which I really enjoy. I like that that aspect. He's well, he becomes more threatening as we go, but especially in the beginning, he is he's 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 just witty and urbane. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he's very forgiving, right? Because they repeatedly, I mean, despite the fact it's their. F- mission to find new life and <laughs> yeah. make contact with it they're like okay let's get out of here from the get-go mm-hmm. yeah and there's like no effort to engage Trelane and and establish contact or learn about him or fulfill any of their standing orders <laughs> and and they're they're totally rude and he keeps forgiving them over and over again yeah. They'll do something that's outrageously provocative, and because he's into this, you're such colorful savages, I love it thing, he'll mm-hmm. immediately forgive them for it. And at one point, like after they've beamed everybody up <clears throat> in violation of diplomatic protocol and first contact protocol, he gets them back down and he's like, and he's set a, a lavish feast for them. He doesn't know it's tasteless, mm-hmm. right. but he's set this lavish feast for them. And he's like, come, let's forget your bad manners. And I'm going, yes, let's, <laughs> thank you. They have been betr- b- behaving atrociously. Now, yes. now, to be fair, being kidnapped against your will can make you a little testy. So I, I'll give Kirk a, a pass on that one. That's true. That's true. That, well, uh, I don't know. I it, <laughs> it, 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 I think in one of the first things they teach you day one in first contact school if the alien kidnaps you but lets you live, that's a good start. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he did, well, but he did want to have them on, on display instead of actually, you know, able to make the first contact. So that, yeah, that yeah. doesn't help either, though. Well, but he lets them go as soon as as soon as the others show up. It's like, oh, I suppose you'll want me to let them go now. Snap, and they're animated again. Yep, right. right. <laughs> well, that, that that all kind of leads to this this very fu- fun exchange between Spock and Trelane. Like, Spock says to Trelane, "I object to you. I object to intellect without discipline." I object to power without constructive purpose. And Trelane is delighted. Oh, Mr. Spock, you do have one saving grace after all. You're ill-mannered. The human half of you, no doubt. <laughs> I just, <laughs> that was such a great a little good repartee. I, that was so much fun. I like he, that. He also, so, so there's a couple of things in connection with this. Um, now, we mentioned the kind of um, anti-violence you know, meme mm-hmm. that was popular in the culture at this time about, oh, humans are so violent, it's so sad, and stuff like that. When, and, and we can discuss that another time. But um, the one of the first things Trelane says when they beam down is, do you know that you're one of the few predatory species that preys even on your own kind? 
Mm-hmm. And and I remember hearing that all the time growing yeah. up that humans were the only species that that preyed on themselves. And it's like, you know how untrue that is? <laughs> it's very untrue. Very, very <laughs> untrue. You know what yeah. the principal cause of death among male baboons is? Other male baboons. Right. <laughs> right. The reason that you have lots of predators like tigers and stuff that are loners. Mm-hmm. They don't get along with their own species. Right. <laughs> exactly. And exactly. they want to stay out of each other's territory if they want to stay alive. Right. So humans are very far from being the only thing that preys on itself. That is a common evolutionary strategy. Yeah. Right. It's it's so self-evident as to beggar the question why like how could anyone even propose this? It's like have you, have you never been outdoors? <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's so untrue obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it's because I think it's because in this time period in particular, it's because of the Vietnam War. Right. And this was a, a, a way of of expressing anti-war sentiment yeah. by ignoring the facts. Mm-hmm. It's true. And, Get- and enough people didn't know, you know, their elementary, didn't have an elementary knowledge of other species to correct this. I'm so glad oh. we've moved beyond ignoring the facts when it, it conflicts with our political and ideological views. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to say about his interaction with Spock is at one point he's he's asking are all Vulcans, you know, are Vulcans predatory like humans mm-hmm. are? And Spock says not generally. And but there have been exceptions. Yeah. And 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 so that would imply so I, at first when Spock started to deliver the line, I thought he might be alluding to well the fact that before Surak mm-hmm. we were mm-hmm. violent, but we're not anymore. But no, uh, he says he, not generally, but there have been exceptions. That means post Surak, yeah. right? There have been predatory Vulcans, and that it, we actually get to see in a, the Deep Space Nine episode Field of Fire. Where you have a Vulcan serial killer loose right. on the station, and yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah, that's it. yeah. There's, there are criminals, the 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 criminally insane, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. I, I I forget, and I could look it up, but I don't want to take time to do that at the moment. I forget in that line. So in that episode, there's a Vulcan who's got a rifle that's hooked up to a tr- mini mini transporter. Oh, that thing's so, so he can, cool. So he can shoot through <laughs> bulkheads and kill people in locked room mystery style. Yeah. And Esri eventually tracks him down with the help of her own serial killer past personality. Yeah. Right, for former host, Duran. So she brings out her own memories of when the Dax symbiont was in an actual serial killer to try to catch one. And it's a very good story. I love the story. Yeah. At the end, they like, she shoots, she, in order to solve the situation, she has to shoot the Vulcan serial killer who is looking back at her through the right. bulkheads with his own transporter rifle. Yeah. And she, mm. and she shoots first and wounds him. And then they rush in and get him. And I, I cannot remember. The line is so perfect. I can't remember if they actually say it or if it's just my headcanon of what they said at that moment, which is Esri asks him why he did it. And the Vulcan replies, it was logical. Right, mm. right. Because that's the perfect line for a Vulcan serial killer. Right. 
Yeah, let me see. Um, I'm quickly. No, it doesn't. It's it's not logical. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I, I was looking quickly to see if what he mm-hmm. um, what he says, but uh, I think it's just my head cannon that yeah. uh, that that's what a Vulcan oh, serial killer no. should have said. He does say it. So, um, oh, okay, says, good. Tell me, why did you do it? And he says, because logic demanded it. There yeah, you go. Which is what good a Vulcan serial killer yeah. would say. Yeah. <clears throat> which which also tells you why logic is not the answer to everything. Uh, it's not the not necessarily the answer. So uh, very cool. So now, speaking now, of Jimmy, uh, okay. you, you mentioned you know the following you know before or after Surak. If, if I remember correctly, they haven't actually developed Surak yet in the series. No, he comes in in season three. Okay, yeah, when they go to when they see when they meet Surak and Abe they, Lincoln, a sort of Surak and sort of Abe Lincoln. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. right. Um, so. Speaking of uh, uh, guns, Kirk and Spock, you mentioned, figure out that one of the replicators is uh, this machine. It's in a, in a mirror that, that uh, Trillane keeps standing in front of. And so Kirk contrives a duel. He wants a duel with, uh, with, with Trillane. And uh, Trillane comes up with replicas of the guns used in the uh, Burr-Hamilton duel. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so they're going to shoot. And then it's, it's a fun little bit of tension because he says, oh, well, of course, as the, uh, as the offended party, I get to shoot first. You, you challenged me to the duel. So <laughs> I get to shoot how, first. That's not how duels work. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. <laughs> well, the, the, there have been some where, where the rule was, yes, you know, the, 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 that person gets to, gets to shoot first. But, uh, in this case, Kirk has to go along with it. And, uh, but then he shoots into the air and, you know, sort of throws away throwing away his shot to for all you Hamilton fans and uh which is something they could do in duels and then Kirk mm-hmm. instead of shooting Trelane shoots the device with the the, the mirror uh, the, yep. yeah with the musket pistol uh the uh, uh black powder pistol and um so that was a, that was a, a fun little scene and then we oh, have this and and then when the replicator breaks yeah all of all of the like the torches go out and the fire in the fireplace goes out and mm-hmm. And and they play this silly bonk sound effect with slide whistle sound yeah. effects. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> yeah, that's and right. It's, it's inappropriately comic. Yeah, mm-hmm. they 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 kind of ruin the uh, the moment with that. Yeah, it was. Re- I do remember thinking that. Um, I I did like right before that though they had had um, Uhura, so they he was Trelane was was trying to entertain the women and, mm-hmm. that he brought down, and so they he he has Uhura. Uh, sit down at the harpsichord and uh and tells her to play some music and she's like i i don't know how to play this and then he gives her the knowledge right and and she starts playing it and she starts getting into it you can see nichelle nichols is you know really grooving to this harpsichord uh track that she's laying down and i liked that and it also fits with the fact that we know nichelle nichols or i'm sorry her character Uhura does play other musical instruments. Yep. In yep. particular, she plays the Vulcan harp, but uh, she didn't. She didn't know this one, and it was. And and sh- since her character is a musician, I mean, yep. anybody would love to you know be able to suddenly play an instrument well. But given the fact she's she is a musician, her character is. Mm-hmm. It's even more understandable how she'd be really getting into the fact that all of a sudden she can now play a harpsichord expertly. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah, uh, that that does remind me. By the way, that when they when Uhura and the Yeoman, I want to just I want to say her name, but I don't remember. Uh, um, in any case, the the Yeoman, uh, Teresa, 
that's her name, uh, mm-hmm. are beamed down. That Kirk introduces them, and when he introduces Yohora, Trelane gives the oh a Nubian prize taken on one of your raids of conquest, no doubt, <laughs> Captain. So yeah, without well, that would be a very politically correct thing to say nowadays. Kirk kind of goes, I, yeah, no doubt. And and I like how Kirk handles that because yeah. for once, okay. So the alien has just said something that is offensive by human standards, and Kirk lets it pass. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. it's like, uh, yeah, no doubt. And let's move on. And, and, and that is a mark of maturity. Right. To mm-hmm. not instantly have to take offense at every offensive thing that gets said in your present and instantly <laughs> have an outrage tantrum and just have, have, it, who cares what your skin color is, have some thick skin let it let it go and focus on what you need to do here which right. is which is what kirk does for once in this episode <laughs> yeah. Yeah. kirk generally does a pretty look- good job of that but yeah yeah good thing yeah. they learned that lesson today oh wait <laughs> <laughs> yeah right yeah well, i can think and, of another series this, where that would happen this is very actually this is very healthy of the original star mm-hmm. trek and we'll see this in in future episodes where in fact, in the third season episode where they meet Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. it's, it's not really Abraham Lincoln, but right. the Abraham Lincoln figure is talking to Uhura and, and I, he says uh, something like, what a pretty negress she is. And, they, and then he stops and says, oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive. And she's like, why would that term offend me? It's just a word. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, that's the episode... Uh- the Savage Curtain. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I have to say that, you know, he, uh, that word and the word he uses is not the word the historical Abraham Lincoln would have necessarily used. Right. Right. He might have used, an, he might have used that word. He was educated enough to use that, but mm-hmm. he might have used a more colloquial term as well, which would have been un, uh, very hard for them to say in um in mm-hmm. 1960s television and yeah. get the reaction but i like the fact the historical distance is such that uhura is able to say well okay i don't care about that word that's a word right right and after a certain historical distance i'm sure there are all kinds of words that hundreds of years ago my ancestors would have been called as insults mhm and I, those words have no resonance for me. Right. Right. You know, right. Well, so even, even now, like just my, my, when my grandfather came here, you know, they would have called him, yeah. you know, a, a, I don't know, the Italian words, a guinea or something, whatever. Um, but does, it doesn't bother me. I mean, <laughs> it's just a word. I mean, I know that it's intended to be a, in, in many cases, intended to be an insult, but it's just a word, you know. Well, and, and in the 19th century, word, words like this, including the N word, were not used to inflict pain. Right. No. I mean, if you read Mark Twain, for example, if you read Huckleberry Finn, which is an incredibly pro-human equality novel, mm-hmm. the N-word is used constantly, and it is very clear nobody's trying to inflict pain right. Right. with this word. And, and so we have a certain cultural resonance or that word has acquired a certain cultural resonance today that it originally did not have historically it wasn't used to inflict pain and and lincoln whether he uses negress or the n-word is not trying to inflict pain right right today its use would would it would have would offend and would have inflict pain it's one of the reasons why we don't use it uh, you know obviously mm-hmm. it's, it's a word that we avoid 
but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- so he also addresses uh, the yeoman, Teresa, and uh, calls her uh, Helen of Troy. This is the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium. Uh, so he, yes, he very- that is a quotation from Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Oh, hmm. I didn't know that was from there. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, and then he uh, re- addresses oh, her. And, and he-, he says, sweet Helen, make me immortal with a kiss, which Trelane then goes on to say yeah. is another part of that quotation. Right, right. He uh, he dresses her in, a, in the in a period uh, outfit and starts dancing with her while Uhura plays, uh, and uh, that kind of gets the the uh, Starfleet men a little yeah, <laughs> just fun. Which delights Trelane. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yes. So we have this where they run from him in the ship, as you mentioned, and they get and Kirk ends up uh, getting taken back, being put on trial, and Kirk basically says to Trelane, "Look, you're bored because there are no stakes. There's no." There's nothing at stake here, so there's not enough sport in it. So that's when he uh, he suggests the hunt that you hunt mm-hmm. me, and uh, he he hunts starts hunting Kirk through the forest, and at the end, Kirk kind of I think he kind of notices that Trelane's acting like a spoiled brat, and grabs his you know sword and breaks it over his knee, and Trelane stomps <laughs> his foot and is very angry that he's not playing the game right. Uh, tell me, I I I tell you, I I live that every day. <laughs> You're not playing the game right. Uh, so, uh, that's, and that's when, of course, Trillane's parents show up and, and do the whole, that whole thing. Um, Kirk ends up describing Trillane as the god of war when, when they're talking about it later. And well, and like, Spock immediately says, dude, he wasn't that. Yeah. Right. Right. But I think he's going for a chaotic, like Ares and Mars. So not quite so powerful, but yeah. Um, or, uh, a naughty little boy and, uh, <laughs> he lists the things that naughty human boys do. Uh, and kind of attributes to like Scott, uh, Spock, like when you were a kid, you know, dipping the girls' pigtails in ink wells, which yeah. is not a thing you would do in the 23rd century, but... Um, or the 20th. Right, yeah. e- exactly. Uh, even by Kirk's time, even by the 60s, that wasn't a thing they would do, but... Uh, it was, well, a, it it kind was of, a trope, though. Yeah. yeah, well, it kind of fit the time, too, that, that Trulane was setting up for the, you know, the 19th century, same kind yeah. of time frame. But but it's it's funny, he goes, uh, he's probably doing things comparable to the same mischievous pranks you played when you were a boy, Spock. And Spock gets, like, horrified and offended that he would be accused of ever misbehaving as a child. And uh, he goes, oh, forgive me, Mr. Spock. I should have known better. <laughs> Which is just a great exchange. Because, uh, yeah, like Spock not misbehaving. Uh, any other notes on this episode, Father Corey? So I got a kick of out of when uh, McCoy and the, the landing party show up. How they land and, you know, they read, oh, there's atmosphere and everything. And Jaeger takes off his mask and sniffs the air. And all I could <laughs> think of was Tech Sergeant 10 on Galaxy Quest, where they <laughs> land, he opens the back, he goes, smells okay to me. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> uh, Jimmy, any other notes? So um, the there's this sequence where they've gone back to the Enterprise and then Trelane moves the planet. Mm-hmm. to follow them and get in keeps getting in front of them mm-hmm. and i don't know how i watched the remastered edition so i don't know how this looked on the uh on in the original uh i mean i've got the original but i didn't dig it out to watch it but in the remastered version wow this is a dramatic space chase sequence they've got mm-hmm. where the planet just keeps sliding in front of them and they're going to crash into it if they don't change course and stop which is what he's trying to get him to do and of course they do stop but 
the the people who did the the CGI for the dig- digital remaster did a really good job in this oh, yeah. sequence. It is very it's like a space roller coaster bumper car thing mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. and it's very effective. Also, I thought it was very effective when Kirk does beam back down. He's in a sort of 17th century looking chamber that's dressed for a trial. And um and you have Trelane there in a black judicial robe with a you know a fleece wig like a judge would wear and and the first thing Trelane says is this time my instrumentality is invulnerable so you don't get to smash my replicator again right (laughs) but he he tells him that uh the sentence if he loses is going to be death and to dramatize that they show a they all of a sudden the lighting changes and the silhouette of a noose appears on the wall behind Kirk and it is it's very effective and Trelane is very angry at first as a judge mm-hmm. but then he admit his mood changes and he admits he can't sustain his anger mm-hmm. and right. this is true this has been consistent of Trelane throughout the episode he will get mad momentarily but his then his mood changes and he goes back to his default of being friendly yep. again and I find that a very interesting characteristic. In fact, he says that he's he didn't think he was capable of the rage. It was like he was delighted to have this emotion that he didn't even know he could have. And he says the experiment has been successful. So he was trying mm-hmm. to get himself worked up into a rage, which is interesting. Yeah. And then at the end, uh, when he's when they and I, I'm kind of so I I guess this being like 1967 or whatever the most dangerous game had not been done to death on television. <laughs> yes. Right. So I have to take that into account, but wow, am I, I'm okay. I, if I want to see the most dangerous game, I will either read the most dangerous game or I will watch the original most dangerous game. <laughs> I don't need to see it played out over and over again. This is one of the things like, it's such a cliche yeah. in American television. It's like the seven, the, the seven samurai. Yeah. You know, you 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 see the Seven Samurai get remade over and over again as episodes in American TV shows, especially American science fiction TV shows. And like even in Battlestar Galactica, instead of mm-hmm. so the Magnificent Seven was the you know American Western version of the of the Seven Samurai. And then you have endless re- redresses of that in American television. Like on Battlestar Galactica, you have the Magnificent Warriors, yeah. which is one of the bottom of the barrel adaptations. The only one that I've seen that I actually enjoy is the Magnificent Ferengi from Boy <laughs> Space Nine. <laughs> that that one, one is that one is fun because they're not just doing let's steal the basic plot. They're yeah. adding to it with lots of humor and characterization, which right, is yeah. the part of what made the Seven Samurai work in the first place. Just because you get seven guys together and defend something, that doesn't make it interesting. The char- they need to have character, mm-hmm. and and that's and they do in the Seven Samurai. But I've it, I it, I see the basic okay. Let's hunt a human being, right? So often that mm-hmm. I get tired of it. Right. Um, but then at the end, Trelane traps Kirk 
and he is uh he's he's basically one all he has to do is run kirk through with the sword and kirk has an interesting psychological tactic he uses at this point which is he's he acknowledges you're feeling good now you're feeling victory and Trelane is yeah i'm feeling victory and and then kirk undermines that feeling he takes it away from Trelane by saying, well, you may have won the fight, but I'm undefeated. You haven't actually beat me because I don't care. Yeah. And yeah, that does undermine the feeling of victory that Trelane is having. And then Kirk breaks his sword and he starts mocking him to his face. And the victory is tasting less sweet for Trelane because he hasn't, he hasn't won acknowledgement of his victory from the person he's defeated. Mm-hmm. And so even though they both know it, Kirk is res- is responding in a way that undermines what he was after emotionally. And then mm-hmm. he slaps Trelane barehanded. <laughs> I mean, yeah. pre- previously he used a glove to challenge him to a duel. Here he just slaps him barehanded. He gives him a backhand and a forehand, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And And I thought this was a very, because Trelane is learning about his emotions in a human context like anger and things like that. This is a this is a nice em, emotional lesson that Kirk is teaching Trelane here, and it's at this point that the parents show up and tell him to go inside. Yes, you're <laughs> grounded. <laughs> Very good, excellent. Uh, so a lot of fun. I I, I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed this episode again as I had uh, before. So as we wrap things up, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Andrew G. John S., Steve N., Miguel G., and Iris V. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of The Squire of Gothos? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the movie Star Trek Generations. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. So we're going to be watching a movie about a holodeck that's flying through space and a guy really, really, really wants to get back into it. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. uh, and uh, Captain Kirk fighting someone to the death who's all powerful. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Star Trek on Starquest, and remember, hip hip hurrah, tally ho, 